Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. So we're excited to be here with Brad Bacigalupi from Red Wolf Technologies. Well done. Thank you. Welcome. Cool. I, have a, I have a really tough last name too, so I had to ask ahead of time how to say it, and hopefully I didn't botch it. I don't know. That's probably the cooler last name, man. That's a pretty it good It is way one. cooler than That's mine. That's cool. Yeah. I yeah. like it. Cool. I've, I'm sure you've heard a thousand ways to pronounce your name. And yeah, most it took till about wrong. third grade to learn how to spell it <laughs> and longer to say it. Yeah. Oh, you just yeah. kind of just know that how whoever says your name, you're just going to have to correct them and help them out with that. You just need to be very gracious to creative pronunciations. <laughs> and yeah. my wife called like three days after we got married. She's like, how do we spell our last name? I was like, uh, That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. There's an M and there's an E on the end. I don't know what's in the middle. Okay, well, let's uh, let's get a 30-second elevator pitch on what Red Wolf is doing. Yeah, uh, Red Wolf Technology, we specialize in products that go inside electronics retail stores, like a Best Buy or a Costco, and we make equipment that makes products for the customer right there on demand, screen protectors, phone cases, uh, even scratch-removing equipment. On demand, right on there. On demand, right there in front of you, yeah. So, like... Mm-hmm. How long does it take to make a so like a phone case? Say I went in and wanted a new phone case. Yeah, yeah. And we t- take the range like a um, a screen protector takes seconds. We cut it out for whatever phone you have, or for your watch or whatever. And for a phone case, we're talking fifteen minutes to forty five minutes or an hour, depending on how big your phone is, how complex you want it to be made. Um, yeah. And they're like customized. You just whatever design you want. Yeah, any color, uh, any pattern. Uh, we can do text. Um, by the way, this is all launching. This is launching at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Yeah, in a month. So this CES. is all building up towards the big show. Good. And, and so uh, you should start seeing it in some chains you recognize pretty quick. And uh, so yeah, the the point is, uh, your teenage kid with an iPhone eight or nine uh, walks into the T-Mobile store to re-up on their prepaid phone, and it's hard to come by an actually good-looking case that wasn't made five years ago, yeah, they make it for you right there, like exactly how they want it. Even as, I mean, I like mine really thin. So you can make really thin cases too? Yeah, we can do thin, low profile, or we can do a big chungus, like big OtterBox style protective case. Just depends on what what you want. Any color, looks cool. Yeah. The whole do thing. you have like a computer that they like sit down and like kind of design it themselves or how does that work? Uh, right now, the way it works is uh, it's an assisted sale where the store uh, operator will use our software and with the customer walk through the process. We say it's kind of like building a car at a car dealership where, you know, you choose the trim, you choose the color, you choose what you want. And then our software spits it out and the 3D printer makes exactly what you want. Very cool. Hmm. So besides cases, what else? Can you, can you, um, so for the audience who's not here in the studio, there's this really cool box next to Brad with all sorts of (laughs) awesome stuff. So I'm like, where else, what else can you make? I want to get into that. I mean, uh, I I don't want to say anything because anything is a big word, but uh, anything that fits inside the box, we can generally make. Um, What we say is, you know, we came here with a very specific mission, which is to make phone cases on demand for customers. But we think, you know, we, we think there's a huge market for lots of other applications and we're just, 
we're listening to the market if there's something else that we didn't anticipate. And that could be orthotics, that could be toys for kids, that could be, who knows? I mean, there are limitations to what the machine can do from a material science standpoint, but there's a huge new market, I think, for on-demand products that's just coming in the next five, 10 years. And uh, we're excited to be on the front end. So short answer to your question is the machine can do lots of really cool stuff. And our software can do lots of really cool stuff. We're just here for, we, because of my background we'll get into is just, I knew, I saw how big the opportunity was for this very narrow niche application, which uh, we think will have a huge impact in many different ways. How is your technology protected? I mean, what kind of mode yeah. do you have around your business? So that uh, we have a handful off? of patents pending um, utility and um, design for the way that we manage the data the unique features of the actual phone case, which are very novel and non-obvious that you have to sweat it out to learn the hard way how to make this work. Um, and then additionally, just lots of just tons of thousands of hours of sweating it out, learning how plastics perform, how the machine, the 3D printer performs uh, that are not easy to come by, not easy, that are non-obvious, that are hard to figure out. So we think we've got a good two to three-year head start before people can put in the time that we've done to figure this out. And, and additionally, we have our IP that's very defensible to hold our position. Good for uh, you. And this, this isn't startup number one, right? Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I've had a, lots of small startups. A handful have gone done very, very well that I'm really proud about. Uh, and so this is following kind of a tried and true playbook that I've put together on previous startup. So yeah, I mean, doesn't mean it's not really, really hard. So we're right in the middle of kind of wartime, building the company, getting product market fit, meeting with customers again. But uh, we've got a lot of confidence and experience based on prior success. So did you always know you were going to be an entrepreneur from like a young age or did this kind of creep up on you later in life? Um, I had no idea what entrepreneurship was. Um, I think it's just kind of following uh, what you're good at. I mean, um, or, you know, we, we joke a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs, in my opinion, a lot of them are just not balanced people. We're driven by <laughs> obsession, trauma, whatever. Caffeine. Caffeine. <laughs> um, and in my entrepreneurial journey, um, I think I'd had some really terrible day jobs. And the result of that was just, it was not a very good quality of life. And I said, I never want to do this again. Like, I've, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't good for my personality. It wasn't good for my mind. It wasn't good for, you know, if you're, if you're a curious person, you've got some kind of ADD going to a desk job is not where you want to be. And, uh, and so then building new products, uh, and kind of the adventure of building up a company, meeting with customers has been awesome. I mean, it's very painful and challenging, but I think it's the only thing I can do. It's just who I am. So yeah, entrepreneurship wasn't, uh, I think I took a class at BYU in entrepreneurship. It was awesome, but um, beyond that, I didn't take any real business classes or entrepreneurship classes. In general, I'm not sure if that's the best. If you're an entrepreneur, I, I'm kind of conflicted if that's a good field of study. <laughs> Personally, in my opinion, I think you learn the principles of entrepreneurship, but uh, you can only be an entrepreneur by doing it, I think, is the some, some ways the best way to do it. So, yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that, 
you know, doing something that you did not want to ever do again, working for those jobs that you were talking about. Yeah. That, that fueled your uh, excitement and desire to be an entrepreneur just naturally, right? Because we hear that quite a bit, like in a, in a position where you don't want to be, you're like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> it, it moves you to where you should be. Yeah. And I find that fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so like for, you know, one very specific example I can think of was uh, um, coming off of my, my Mormon mission. I was in Italy. And it was, it was a dream, um, you know, in a very beautiful part of the world, meeting with great people, you know, interesting people, eating great food, and I was thriving. I loved what I was doing. Um, Rough mission. Damn. Uh, but but <laughs> also very challenging from sure. the uh, KPIs of a Mormon missionary. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> if gaining weight and seeing beautiful Catholic churches is a, is a KPI, I was number one. <laughs> but uh, other KPIs were a little more challenging. But, um, and then I come home from there and, you know, I was just, just a punk kid, right? 21, didn't know anything about anything. And my dad, uh, set me up with a job with a, with a, an insurance firm in my hometown. And I was like, oh, sweet. I got a job. I don't have to worry about this. And I was in the basement of a building writing, you know, uh, insurance checks all day, every day. And it was dark and depressing. And people had been there that, you know, my coworkers had been there for you know, 30 years, 40 years. And it was just imagine the office, right? Like not the good part of the office, like the depressing parts of the office. And I was like, I cannot made a conscious decision. This is not, you know, where I want to spend my life kind of a thing. Like, <laughs> How long did you last? A summer, just barely. <laughs> just so barely. funny you oh. say that because my career started, some, uh, you know, similar where um, uh, I was out of grad school. And I'm like, what, you know, the first job, you're always looking for that first job. And it's kind of an interesting experience because you're qualified, but you don't really have experience that you should. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I started with uh, a company here. I won't say which one here in the, in the Valley here. And, uh, I was doing claims. Right. And the same experience. I'm like, so to, to kind of paint this picture, my boss, the first day of work, he pulls me in his office and he says, AJ, your mom, she's a liar. Your grandma, she's a liar. You're a liar. I'm a liar. Everyone's a liar. So treat this job as such. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is insane. And unfortunately, in the claims world, that proved to be true because yeah. everyone was lying to you every day. And I'm like, I cannot do this. This is too much negativity. I hate this. And I had the same experience that yeah. you had. So reunited by our bad experiences in the insurance industry. <laughs> yeah. It all started with innovation. <laughs> yeah. I'll start with poor insurance uh, uh, experiences Everybody's and a stuff. liar. At least yeah. you didn't go to school for f- six years and then get your first job I and know. realize. Because I, I got an accounting degree, and then I went to my first, day, my first day in like corporate America, like this big corporation in Salt Lake, and I called my wife at lunch on my first day and was like, can't do it, babe. She was like, you got to stick it out for a little while until you find something else. So luckily it was, it was like a year and a half, but so I lasted longer than three months. Yeah. yeah. So then what, Brad, three months goes by, you're not doing that anymore. What are you doing? Um, still trying to figure out what, I mean, um, so then you had to go back to school and I, you know, the, the life path was pretty well laid out up until that point. Right. Like having grown up. So in a very traditional Mormon family in California, you know, get good grades in school, play your sports, you go on your mission and you go to college. And so I made it to college, but I did, my parents were also pretty, pretty stringent on certain things, but pretty, uh, free range on other, like 
very little guidance on what I should do with my career, right? Like, I think with my kids, I'll probably give them a little more direction, like, these types of jobs pay better. These types have a little more insecurity or more security. But, you know, my parents didn't really care about that. They were just happy I made it that far to college. <laughs> and so um, I'm going through the lists of degrees at the university, and I don't – none of them are really standing out to me. They were, like, too many hours or not interesting or – and I was really good at one thing, and I got a degree in Italian because I was pretty good for my mission at Italian. I loved the language. I loved the culture, and the classes were fun, and I was with my friends. Um, but kind of in the the infinite wisdom of the university, they said, we're not going to let any Italian majors go out into the world with just a degree in Italian. Like, <laughs> we got to give them some skills. <laughs> they got to earn a, you know, they got to support a family. And the requirement was that you had a minor degree. And so then I went through the minor list, and... Um, on the minor list, one of the shorter programs and sounded pretty interesting was manufacturing engineering. And I'm like, oh, cool. I like technology and the classes are cool. And we get to go down into the shop and on the mill and on the lathe and on the CNC machine um, and make things. And I loved it. And uh, so I got a minor degree in, a, in manufacturing engineering. And that was, I think, probably, I mean, the I think there, there's, there's a lot of really wisdom, a lot of wisdom in having some liberal arts background and some technical background. Um, you know, in the humanities, you learn about art and culture and people and beautiful things. And then, uh, manufacturing, I think there's a lot of that too, making beautiful products, understanding the psychology of how a product is designed and what goes into it. And so, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, technically I use my, I, I later on went and got a master's degree in it too, because it was just, um, at the previous company it was just so high risk. I thought, uh, I was just married, married and said, I need to get some, um, uh, probably some insurance. So I need a little bit more. I feel like for the sake of my wife and, you know, if things go sideways, I should probably continue my education. So I got a master's degree in manufacturing and engineering and further fell in love with it, right? Like really cool to learn how to a CNC machine operates, how the code works, how to think about optimizing and being more efficient. And so that's kind of how it all began at the university after the mission. That was one of the big things was just the, those formative years. And then um, additionally, but you started your company between your bachelor's degree and your master's degree. Yeah. Uh, in my undergrad started the first company, uh, the big one. Um, and that's another fun, exciting story there as well. But the, the first, for me, school was really good to learn how to communicate, um, learn how to communicate in a written form, communicate in PowerPoint, communicate verbally, because I find, uh, in my day to day, I mean, that's all businesses is communicating, communicating. Um, Good point. And so all through college too, I had a handful of, uh, I had my stable job, which like I taught, I taught at the university uh, Italian. And then I had my fun jobs to make extra cash. And so like as a teacher of Italian, I had to really get good at cranking out PowerPoint lessons. It was a daily class and I would have to crank it out the hour before. And I used that so much to make to make my message to my customers, to my team, everybody very, very clear. Um, and so that, that's what, from the liberal arts, that's another thing I got out of is just being able to communicate well. Um, and then the technical degree, I mean, we use it every day for how we think about product. But, right. So when you say, I guess you started multiple companies, it sounds like, while you were getting your bachelor's degree or in that time between. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, kind of, I love how you're like, no big deal. Yeah, of course. The no, big doesn't one. everyone do that? <laughs> you, you always just got to keep moving. Just, yeah, I love uh, it. Got to pay the bills. Um, for better or for worse, I didn't have a ton of financial support. Uh, 
um, I'd say next to none. Good news is in, in at the time, Utah was still very affordable and school was very affordable, so it didn't take much. Where was this at? Which university? Uh, at BYU. BYU, okay. Yeah, and so I, I think I was very blessed with a lot of really great opportunities, a lot of good side hustles. I bought my first house when I was like 22, 23, and that was a big blessing for having an asset, uh, having my first loans, how to think about qualifying for a loan. Um, it was kind of when, when I got married, I kicked my roommates out and had to start paying my own mortgage, <laughs> which was, I don't know, something you just, just a phase. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've always been building companies and some of them were just, um, side hustles or just fun things to do adventures. Uh, and then you get into the big leagues and then you got to really focus in on the ones you're, where you really want to spend your time because you see the opportunity, which is what I'm doing now and what some of the other ones I've done in the past that were really exciting. Cool. Well, it sounds like it's uh, college was very educational for you on, you know, not, not just scholastically, but you were starting all these companies and learning more about yourself and your limitations. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. College. Yeah. It was, I guess it just filled my time. I, I was working all through school, usually multiple jobs. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's a numbers game. You cycle through enough and the one that sticks is the one you run with, Yeah, which is what, what happened when I was right when I was, uh, in fact, I remember when I was graduating, meeting with a friend, kind of talking about, you know, what are you going to do next? That was right when my previous company that we built and sold was just starting to just, was just an idea. And I remember kind of like when you meet your, your wife to be, you're like, this is the one, um, the product we were building. I had just this feeling. I said, this is, this is, there's something really exciting. I have, you know, my spider sense says this is the thing. And true enough, that was the all the stars were aligned. We, you know, I had a good feeling for the market. I mean, and then I didn't know anything about anything. I was still just a young punk, but generally the pieces were there. And, you know, that was a really, that was a nice eight year ride and a big, big thing. Uh, what was it? Yeah. What, yeah. Oh yeah. What so yeah. What was that? So, um, background on that, you know, one of the, the companies I'm most proud about, um, uh, out of college, I was looking for my next thing. And I was working with the University Technology Transfer Office, and they had a really cool technology I was interested in. Uh, it was a it was a way to coat protective films, uh, a, high, a super hydrophobic coating for protective films. And I found this company that was using this protective film on windshields. I was like, okay, this is cool. I did, I could do the math. You know, there's how many billion uh, cars in the world that don't have protection, they suffer from rock chips and road debris. And I was like, oh, this could be really cool. And so I started slinging that product. We had a contract with the BMW dealership in town and it was pretty good. But I found quickly that it just, there wasn't a very good product market fit. Going back to insurance, a lot of people don't don't care about the cost of having a protector on your windshield because insurance will take care of it for so cheaply. It's just, it's an itch that not many people want to scratch. It's just not it's that big need, of a deal. It's a want. It's not a need kind of thing. And so I learned, and then I'm just not really a car guy. Like it was fun for a while, but I'm like, eh, whatever. But the, this was right when the iPhone was just starting to, was announced. I, mean, I was there and Steve Jobs announced the iPhone, this new iPod, music player, telephone, calculator, all these things, TV, all in one. And so I started using this windshield protector as a screen protector. And in my living room in Provo, um, 
I taught myself how to make screen protectors with this. You know, we'd buy big rolls of it, and in my living room, we'd chop it down into little sheets, and I'd go to the Provo Mall and sell it to the repair guys and you know the people, everybody around the Zag shop, because we were a few years behind Zag on the screen protector front. Um, and I thought, and this is kind of the moment. I said, okay, this is really cool. There is a huge market. Cell phones are going to go mainstream. This is when most people still had their flip phones or their Nokia's, and uh, only the early adopters had their smartphones. And so we bought this machine in my living room where we were making out huge sheets of screen protectors, cutting them up, putting them in a box. And we had a really cool story about windshield protection. And we were getting meetings. Um, uh, in fact, one of my things I'm proud of is we got a meeting in Apple in Cupertino when Steve Jobs was still in the building. Right? I didn't meet him, but whatever. But we, one of the guys we met with on his business card was one of the original guys. He was like Dave or something at apple.com. Don't email Dave at apple.com because he'll be mad. But it was a guy. We're just first name at apple.com. And his, his title was product evangelist. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. We're here with the evangelist, the apostle of Apple, just to, just to get his blessing on our product. Uh, long story short, uh, that, that story about a windshield protector and the product we had just wasn't good enough. People already had their distribution in place. They didn't really care about another product in another box made in America. Uh, but what they really cared about was this machine I brought with me that was making the screen protectors because it was it was doing some cool stuff like we had a we uh, we got a meeting with Best Buy Canada and we brought the product again I had my beautifully packaged box we were showing them our screen protectors how awesome it was and again they didn't care they already had screen protectors they had their distribution they cared about this demo machine and the guy uh, in the meeting I recall had a really high end watch he had like a Breitling or something and I thought ah let me let me show you how let me show him how cool this machine is and on my laptop I went and I drew a circle. And I said, print. And the machine printed out a little screen protector right there for him. And he was blown away. And back when I said, this is pretty easy. I just made a circle and told my little printer to print out a little screen protector. But he thought this was magic. And, uh, and that kind of led to the conversation. We'd always had this idea in our head that there's a big market for screen protectors to be made on demand. And when this guy said, hey, we'd love to have this in our store, uh, can you build it? The light went off. We said, oh, yeah, absolutely, we can build this. And so we went away for six months. We built the proof of concept. We started out here in South Provo with a little dev shop and built that proof of concept. And uh, we got a contract for, at the time, it was 380 stores, which is a big, big contract for us because uh, uh, every Best Buy in Canada took on our screen protector machine, and then we were off to the races because we were first to market. And we... We had explosive growth where we were right right early on we got acquired by one of our raw material manufacturers because we're this little company in you know Provo, Utah that suddenly is buying huge quantities of their plastic, their raw these sheets of plastic. What, what was the name of the company, just so we know? Yeah, the company that acquired us, it's a part of a big Japanese multinational. The Japanese company is called Lintec. Okay. And the US wholly owned subsidiary is called Matico. What was the name of your company though? My company at the time was called Clearplex Protection Pro. Clearplex, okay. Clearplex. Yeah, yeah. Protection Pro. So the, the brand now, if you go to you know a big retailer and you see a little machine in the back, it's probably Protection Pro, which was that. And so um, we grew to be in 30,000 stores, 160 countries. I'd personally been to about 50 of those countries as we were building out the sales and distribution. So it was an awesome ride for you know a little kid from nowhere, California, to see to go back to see the world and sling my product. And it was awesome because we, there's this little niche that a lot of people weren't thinking about, which is this use case where someone walks in with an old phone 
the retailer hasn't, doesn't have anything to sell them. And now suddenly they have the tools to do it. So imagine you're a shop owner in Venezuela. Uh, there's crazy inflation. It's hard to get product in the country. There's weird phones in Venezuela, like secondhand phones, phones that are unique to only Venezuela. I lived there for a couple of years. So I know a little bit about it. You know, right. It's just, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's wild. It's crazy. And so you're a little owner of a tienda there. Like and you need stuff to sell. You now have something you can sell to any phone, any watch, any tablet that walks in the store. You can now make some money. That's cool. Yeah. And so I'm really proud of that. It was a really great ride. Um, we're the, the uh, Red Wolf Technology. We're back in the ba- in the business doing that again um, with a bigger and better and newer platform. And so I was back in China meeting with some of our suppliers. And uh, it was interesting to see what has happened in the industry since we started it. And we were doing some back-of-the-envelope math, and we think that uh, anywhere from 600 million to a billion phones have been protected in this new format that started 10 years ago. Uh, so I'm pretty proud about that. It's you know creating a lot of jobs. It's a really cool, unique uh, application, and uh, we're back to do it again in a, in a unique format, which is on-demand phone cases. When you look at the problem, there's some really interesting stuff that we're solving for in terms of... Uh, electronic waste in terms of sustainability, in terms of creating jobs, in, in terms of exposing the mass market to this new technology, which is 3D printing, which has always been a little bit uh, kind of hokey with, you know, 3D printing houses and shoes and, you know, whatever, plates and stuff they talk about in the past. And I think we're kind of at a new exciting point in the industry where this is going to, you know, I'm happy to be part of the story of 3D printing on-demand green services going more mainstream. And so that's kind of a long answer to a short question. I don't remember. No, that was great. Yeah, I just wanted to know. The background. Kind of, I mean, it makes sense that you went from this, that, that past company to yep. what you're doing today. The, kind of it full helps circle almost. Tell really? the story, yeah. 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 It's kind of, yeah, it is kind of full circle, right? I mean, we spent being a category creator takes so much effort because you have to train, change the whole mindset. Uh, retail stores are used to. I have a peg, I have a product that goes on the peg, I have a skew, I have inventory I got to manage. We say, no, throw all that out. There's a new way to do it. It's just, you just have one skew. And anything that comes to the store, you can make it. And, and the buyers have to, you know, it takes a little time for them to think about this. And then they start going, okay, this makes sense. I'd have zero waste. I can make more money. We need to start doing this. No so inventory to, that you no. have to store. Yeah, anything, yeah. yeah. Like, it's just a whole new change of, of mindset. So we spent tons of time educating the market on this new concept. How did you do that? Through video or through um, presentations or what? All the above. Trade shows, oh. in-person meetings, local distributors. Um, and then you start to get some institutional knowledge where they get it. It's part of the program. The good staff members, this is a way for them to stand out and show how great they are at sales or support. And so um, my point is uh, it was a very natural transition to – extend the offering to more on-demand stuff. I mean, we're already halfway there with a screen protector. Now let's do a phone case on the back. And the people we're selling to already get it. They've already made millions of dollars doing it on the thing we did launched previously. We're doing it again with an extension of the same offering. So in certain ways, the, the pitch, the concept has been very easy. Uh, but technically it's been, again, super hard because no one's done it before. So we're doing things and thinking about problems in ways that just, it's just, there's no precedent. I mean, we we're, we're able to do our, a lot of our own research and we've got a lot of experience in things, but uh, it's in some ways much harder, the new product, but I think that's another moat, right? Like 
the previous thing we got copied pretty quick. And frankly, uh, we got, I would say in some ways, the last company beat because the Chinese were so fast and so quick at even copying it or improving it. Uh, where this time around, we know what's going to happen. I think it's just being prepared and thinking a few years ahead. And we've got like a really good plan for how we'll diversify and keep, uh, stay the leader. It's interesting because we've, we've actually had one of the founders on the podcast before of Zag, oh. uh, Philip Chipping. So um, kind of heard that story and it moved, it went fast, right? Yeah. And um, big, big market. So you just kind of capitalized on that same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we th- there will always be a place for mass market flagship pre-made stuff in China. Uh, but now there's a precedent and data that shows all the long tail devices, the value of being able to make something real time. Um, in fact, we, we joke that this is an example where a product made in a store is the one example where this is faster than Amazon because Amazon will still take an afternoon to come to your house if you live in San Francisco or something. But this, you can have it in minutes right there. So um, cool. that's what's really exciting to me is changing, you know, in uh, right now especially, right, like the, the economy is pretty tough. Money's hard to come by. Retail stores are kind of consolidating. Cost of staff is up. Cost of holding inventory is very hard com- competing with Amazon. And so this is also, I'm really happy to say, you know, this is a new way a store can be, their, their staff can be more skilled, they can be more profitable in a much smaller uh, footprint. Yeah. And it's uh, another way for, I mean, there, there's, there's always going to be a place for a retail experience. And this just makes it a more interactive, profitable for the retail store and for the customer. So they buy the machine, their employee runs the machine. They, they uh, you know, they kind of, hold the customer's hand as they go through that and get they, the- they do it all. It's a service. We, um, in fact, here in Utah, Utah's really big on SaaS, right? Software as a service. Uh, we, we kind of say we're, we're software as a service, but we have a kind of a different designation of hardware as a service, HASS. And so the mm. equipment is there. I like that, HASS. HASS. HASS and SaaS. Brother yeah, and HASS sister. and SaaS. SaaS and <laughs> The um, So the staff, it's an assisted sale. They, 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 yeah. they walk them through... Um, do you want a bumper? Do you want a case? Do you want something for your AirPods? Do you want something for your watch? Do you want a screen protector? Just tell what you want. Yeah. Yeah. But it's their staff that's running it. It's so. their staff. It's currently, I think eventually there could be a play for a fully self-serve vending machine style thing. Yeah. But in the short term, the opportunity is an assisted guided service. Is it's it cool. so turnkey that you don't worry about quality standards and Oh no, we think about this all the time. This is the problems we're solving for is how to okay. make this absolutely idiot proof. And that's the machine that you've created. The machine and the design. So um, the phone case is among the most difficult things for us to go after because it's multi, it's three-dimensional and people hold this in their hand all day long, like eight hours, 10 hours plus as they're doing this. And so minor imperfections, fit if it's imperfect, is uh, water torture for the customer. So uh, screen protectors in some instances was easy because it was clear people didn't think about it. Phone cases is up in your face, in your hand. It's an extension of your body. And that's one example of how this has been so challenging is comparing it to a perfect Apple case. Because 3D printing is, there is still room for error. And it's made right there in front of the customer. But we're getting real good at it. Like mm-hmm. both in our software and our training and then in the industry at large, there's been some huge developments that have made 3D printing affordable, fast, and uh, high quality. And so, I mean, I've been thinking about this problem for eight years plus, but previously it just wasn't, it wasn't possible because the, uh, 
previous technology was so rough and slow and expensive that no one would would uh, accept it. And now when I hand someone my phone, my phone case, and I say, tell me what you think about your phone case, sometimes the biggest compliment is they don't say anything. They're just like, oh, it's just a phone case. And they say, yes. Awesome. It worked. Heck yeah. No problem. <laughs> they didn't notice. It's great. <laughs> they did. It, was made, it was made in a 3D printer. So that's a good sign for us. And then there's things that we can do through 3D printing that mass market just won't be able to do, period. And uh, that's really exciting to us, being able to do carbon fiber, be able to do graphene, to be able to embed new stuff. And this is all kind of part of our Skunk Works R&D. So we're just happy to have an MVP launching Q1. Retail stores have been super receptive, especially in like the European market. They've got a very trained, well, very well-educated, enthusiastic staff. They're very green. Um, the, 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 th the reason about why 3D printing is so exciting is there's no packaging waste. So we think about like a screen protector. Um, you open it, 90% of the weight is just the packaging. The, all the product that was there to sell you on why you need to buy this little piece of glass or plastic, and that immediately gets thrown out. Um, we don't have that. There's no packaging. It's just made just for you. Um, and then what we find with the phone case industry. Does it, does it come off the machine like warm even? Like yeah, like a nice little warm cookie. Oh, it's kind of cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, Freshly made. And when you start looking at the problem more and more, like it's been, I mean, I used to be a screen protector guy, still am. Like that's, you know, kind of how I cut my teeth. But when you look at the phone case, I've been shocked when I do the research, we think it's anywhere from 30 to 40% of brand new product inventory unopened gets thrown away because that purple you know, Hello Kitty phone case never found a home. And it's like selling calendars. They get, they're aging and becoming obsolete every single day. And so we've got pictures and horror stories from our customers, our distributors, where they write off hundreds of thousands of dollars of brand new product in, an, in the package thrown away because no one found it, no one wanted it, which is a huge waste. Like it's just pretty sad story. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's just lots of people that just, they don't have anything to sell. There's just, and so that phone will, will get broken faster that will end up in a landfill faster. And so we, we did the back of the envelope math. It was something like 70 football fields full of pallets of brand new product that never got sold, which is just, wow. just a huge thing. And so sick. in the European market, that's why we're so excited. They get it. They understand why we need to change our consuming or our, our habits for consumption and waste. The staff is very educated. They understand how this, they're excited by these new technologies and strategies, and they're not all iPhone and Samsung. There's a lot more diversity in uh, the Android ecosystem of Xiaomi, Huawei, Oppo, Vivo, Motorola, Kyocera. And so that's perfect for us, high diversity, uh, skilled staff. And so, you know, that's why we're, uh, that's why I go through all the pain because I know there's a big prize for the problem we're solving. Well, that's interesting. So um, it sounds like <clears throat> you've been through this handful of times now. Yeah. Um, what is maybe one or a few of the kind of lessons you've learned about entrepreneurship over your career? Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It is very, very hard. And so um, kind of like those disclaimers, like if anybody's thinking about entrepreneurship, uh, I'll just, for, for the legal, I'll say don't do it. <laughs> right? It's very hard for your sanity unless you're programmed, unless it's your calling. Um, big disclaimer right there. Yeah, right? there's a disclaimer, right? Don't, uh, but, but, but again, if, if this is what you're programmed for, uh, do it right. Find, uh, you know, focus on a really great product, build a really great team and, uh, 
and make sure what you're building is what people want. Cause, uh, there's been less, I've learned that lesson the hard way. You'll spend all this time and effort, uh, building something. And then at the end of the day, like no one will pay for it. No and, one, no one wants it. And it sounds like you're really careful looking for that product market fit up front first. Then you go to manufacturing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs like green first timers who are like, I can't tell you my idea. It's a secret. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to tell anybody. I got to keep it. Someone will copy me. And you're like, dude, nobody cares about your idea. You should talk to everybody you can <laughs> get over yourself right now. Like, get it out in the market. Cause you're the, what people will pay for may be, might be a hundred iterations from what you have right now. You need to talk about it. Like, and trust me, no one's going to steal your idea of the idea you have right now. Unless you've got some like great experience in the past, but if you're a green entrepreneur, talk to everybody, get every feedback and then see if you can get money. People will pay for it. Cause that's the real test. If someone actually cares and not your aunt or your mom or your dad, like, Will a stranger off the street at a store or online buy your thing? And will and then will a lot of people buy that thing? <laughs> like, and, I, and I think that's important. It's not just do you like it or not. It's would you pay money for it right now? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the lessons I say. Just, uh, yeah, you got to be – I think you got to be obsessive. You got to have, like, a lot of grit. Um or you got to be really unhappy cutting insurance checks. Yeah, be really unhappy <laughs> in a dark insurance basement. Checks. No, and my joke is just that like I'm just a sucker for pain. Um, uh, I just love suffering, right? Like uh, as a kid, I was the youngest of a bunch in big family of mostly boys, and so I had to fight for to have you know to be a member of the family to get food and table scraps, table scraps, and just <laughs> not get knocked around. Uh, and then you know went on a mission to Italy, which is just. Uh, just suffering in many ways and then doing startups. And then I used to do, by, by the way, do you still speak fluently Italian? Oh yeah. I use it every day. We've got some great customers over there and I love it. It's just a big, big part of my well, life. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then turn, you know, back to the theme of like more suffering. Yeah. There was a period where I loved, you know, 50 pounds ago where I loved endurance sports. And, uh, again, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's just, it was a challenge and something you kind of fixate on and you do it. And so I think you need that kind of a DNA, to get through the hard stuff because uh, it will get really hard, but it's worth it when, when, uh, when it works. Cool. Well, um, Brad, this is, this has been awesome. I feel like we've had a, a full uh, um, lesson on manufacturing and making sure you do it right. And, and why you go into, uh, you know, the different facets of the product. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the audience, you know, that, that we haven't touched on that's on your mind or where, you know, where you're going next, you know, that you're excited about? Um, I mean, I think um, just the general audience at large, I think it's uh, the future of retail and just e-commerce in general is we need to be thinking about greener, more, com I mean, we, I think for years and years we've, uh, we've been blessed with uh, very good trade terms and globalism, the good parts of globalism. And we need to be thinking about, you know, could, how could that change? Um, and how can we, you know, how, how can, you know, again, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the era of AI and automation and all these things, how do humans find more value and be more trained to stay relevant in a very dynamic changing, uh, economy. And so I'd say the, the big opportunities are the gold is for the people who know how to find those, uh, uh, those gaps to fill. And so, uh, despite the challenges, I'm very, I mean, I guess entrepreneurs are also the, the, you know, endless optimists. And so I think 
continue to be optimistic despite you know economic challenges and find those opportunities. And the other message to the world would be anybody who's really passionate about on demand and marketing and sales and whatever, like we, we, uh, so we've got a great band of, of uh, great people and we're always growing. We've got big problems to solve and a huge market to fill. So, so if you need a job, reach out. Yeah. That's hiring. Redwolf.io. You can <laughs> find you me go. on LinkedIn and, uh, yeah, we appreciate, and we have to say thank you to CB Vault and to Rev Road. Uh, they've been a great partner to us. You know, we uh, behind where we're at has been a huge army of people who believe in what we're doing, believe in the cause. You know, even me personally, right? Like, this has been a yeah, we're very very grateful. It's been Utah has a very good community that we rally together and and try to help make a make an impact. Cool. Well, we're excited to be a part of it. I'm. I've been fun. It's been fun to see your journey so far and. I'm excited for the launch. So yeah, look be, out uh, at CES. We'll uh, that's the big one. We, we've been doing teasing the market all along the way, and uh, I think we'll have some fun stuff to share in January. Cool. Well, Good luck, Brad. Yeah, thank cool. you guys. Thanks for being on the podcast. Catch you Absolutely. later. Yeah, thank you. Bye. The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And Rev Road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out. <laughs>